We're going to carry on reading in Corinthians. We're going to read the second half of chapter 14. So just bringing this little section of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth uh, to a close. Um, as we've seen along the way, and if you're visiting for the first time today, we've been reading um, over some time now, dipping in and out of the book of Corinthians. And the Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote in response to some issues that had arisen in this newly planted church in Corinth and some questions that they'd asked. So some reports had got back to him of things that were not good, but also they had asked some questions of Paul. And Paul, as their father in the faith who had stayed with them, taught them for a year and a half, uh, for longer than that, in fact, um, uh, wanted them to know uh, as the apostle to the Gentiles, uh, what, their, what his answers would be to their questions, but also his, uh, his opinion, his verdict, as it were, on, on some issues that had arisen in the church. So these past few chapters, we've been looking at the question of, of spiritual gifts, of this phenomenon that had arisen in the church in Corinth and in all the churches, in fact, where the, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit was, was releasing gifts, um, supernatural gifts and abilities amongst the people. And uh, some of them were more uh, obvious and outward than others. And in this first half of the chapter we've just looked at, we looked at two of those more outward gifts, one being the gift of tongues. And so we looked last week and, and thought about what that is, the gift of, of being able to, uh, to speak in a language that not even the person who's speaking understands, but it becomes a language of worship and intercession between that individual and God. And so very much uh, a gift to resource and help and nourish and nurture um, the, 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 the kind of devotional and prayer and intercessory life of the individual Christian disciple. And then the, the, the more, uh, the body gift of prophecy, which is hearing from God and speaking into a person or a community's life the truth that God wants them to know, either uh, for their um, correction or for their encouragement, a declaration, a declaration of maybe what God is about to do that they should hold on to, believe for, and pray for, uh, or something that God wants them to know in terms, of, uh, in terms of how he sees them and, and perhaps what they need to address. And so, Paul has been addressing these two out of the other gifts and, and particularly addressing the issue that one is meant to build up our private relationship or our relationship with God in private. And if it's exercised in public to be of any benefit, there ought also to be someone who has the parallel gift Okay, the parallel gift of interpretation, who is able then to explain to others what the person speaking in tongues has just said if they deliver something publicly. And so he sets that gift against the benefit to the public, to the church community of the prophetic gift, and is urging them to focus on the gifts which build up the body of Christ. Your relationship with God is not just about you and God. That would be relatively easy. I could be an amazing Christian if it wasn't for other people. But the challenge is that genuine discipleship is worked out in relationship with other people. And anything that is not worked out in and through the body of Christ is a diminished form. I'm not saying you can't be a Christian if you're not in fellowship. But you're not facing the full challenge 
and you're not facing the full cost, and you're not reaping the full benefit either of being part of the body of Christ. So we're going to read um, from chapter 14, verse 26, where Paul moves on then from his chat about tongues and prophecy to, to what a church service ought to look like. <laughs> There's a bit of a challenge. Yeah. And we'll, we will address the challenges that it throws up, okay? Brace yourselves. So, Paul moves on then. He moves on from explaining about the tension between this private gift of tongues and how it's to be exercised, and, and he picks up on his theme in what we've just read, over against the gift of prophecy where a word of instruction, a word of what God is saying or speaking to the church may be delivered. Now, bear in mind, this is a church that doesn't have the New Testament, <laughs> How could they? The letter they received was going to be part of it. <laughs> and so they're not working from the written down scriptures yet. The scriptures would be written down and gradually they would be, uh, the gospels would be distributed and, and they would begin to, uh, to, to base their ministry and their discipleship and their life as a church on the Word of God as we know it. But at that stage, it was very much a sharing of what, happened, uh, what people uh, brought and what insight and revelation. And so the Spirit was working hard because there wasn't the textbook yet, if you like, certainly not the, the Gospels and the, and the Epistles uh, to fall back on as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a constant, a record of what God had said and breathed through His Word. And so we have um, Paul's description of, of, of church life. The reason I asked you earlier on to think about weddings was because I was trying to think of a way in which we could imagine ourselves into the church in Corinth, okay? Now, along the way, we've recognized that Corinth, and I'll say it again for those who are here for the first time, but Corinth was this international port city, this crossing point between trade routes that went east and west and north and south. It was a city that, that was buzzing, that was dynamic, that had a lot of rich people, because generally in trade routes, you've got the people who are, who are, are creaming off at the top, and then you've got a lot of uh, people right at the bottom who are enslaved. And these are people who probably stopped off on their travels east, west, north, or south. So you've got a multicultural city. So very rich, very poor, everything in between, slave and free. You've got a, in this church... You've got a Jewish group, and then you've got a Greek group who are not Jewish. So ethnically, in terms of their own religious background, you've got different people. And let me not put too fine a point on it. This is Greece. Okay, how many people here saw my big fat Greek wedding? All right. So you've got a Middle Eastern people all right, a people who are broadly speaking from what we know as Turkey or Greece or who've migrated from Italy or who've come from further east. I'm just trying to add my geography's rubbish. What would further east be? Yes. Sorry? Persia. Yes, thank you. That's what I thought. I just lost confidence for a second there. So now you've got a church service where it's full of 
let's call them passionate people. Mediterranean people. They didn't just become like our stereotype of Italians or Greeks in the last 50 years. Culturally, ethnically, in terms of character and personality. If I was to ask you what was to characterize British people, I don't know what words you would come up with. I mean, typically, certainly the English would be typified by being reserved. Scots, unfairly, I believe, are characterized as being mean, which actually I think is unfair. <laughs> there are cultural types. And if you put yourself into a different culture, as those of you that, that commented on different wedding experiences that you'd had, you can go into a different culture and your jaw drops at what they do. I mean, I think, frankly, David, you get the biscuit, you know, or the prize or whatever this morning with a, with a pig in minus 25 degrees and $2,000 under the door. How weird is that? That's just crazy, but in that culture, it makes perfect sense. The weirdest wedding I was ever at was in Cambodia, and it was spectacular. But I kept losing track of the bride and groom because they kept changing clothes. Nine different sets of outfits in the course of a wedding. The wedding cake, 13 or was it 15 tears? I've never seen a bigger wedding cake. I mean, the thing was just a spectacle. Uh, and there were the clothes and the colors and, and everything. It was just incredible. But I just watched it and looked on in wonder. So let's make sure that we have this backdrop. Because we have a congregation here which is diverse in all sorts of ways. We have a congregation here which are young, immature, and I don't mean that unkindly, I just mean that they've not yet had time to mature in Christ. And so they're young, enthusiastic, zealous Christians. They're on fire for Jesus, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're experiencing these incredible phenomena, and, and they're not quite sure how it works or what they're supposed to do with it. There's that human element of pride and superiority creeping in, where they want to show off their gifts. And all of that in a noisy Middle Eastern cultural context. Let's take out the things Paul tells them to do and see what happens. Let's assume that if Paul is telling them quite specifically and emphatically that two or at the most three should speak one at a time and someone must interpret, let's take that instruction out then and see what we've got. Eight, ten, twelve people all speaking in tongues at the same time with no one there interpreting? What does that look like? Chaos. What does it look like if you've got 10 people all speaking prophetically a different message from God in the one service? How do you process that? I tell you, if, if, if I were to line up another nine preachers who were all going to deliver a completely different message on a completely different talk, text, at the end of our five-hour service, you would be going to seek the company of a darkened room. So when we read this, and when we think about it in context, because context is everything in this book, then you have to do it on the understanding that Paul was speaking to this church, not to prescribe, 
how it ought to be for every church service in every part of the world, here and after, forevermore, until Jesus come back again. But he was speaking to a people and bringing them to a place where they're witness to the grace of God in Jesus and the salvation and the rescue of sin, from sin, by the blood of Jesus, would not be lost or obscured by a cacophony of chaos. He wanted to help this young, energetic, toddler church, chucking its toys about and having a party to calm down and focus and make sure that the focus of the gospel was not lost in their noise. But what can we learn? Because you see, I don't think Paul would write these things to us. I don't think Paul would be writing to us and saying, calm down, St. George's Tron. You're just far too chaotic, okay? I mean, I read this and I think he says, when you come together, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. So I can imagine Paul standing here going, so come on then. What did the Lord say to you as you're preparing for worship today? What did the Lord give you as you were preparing to come? What did the Lord reveal to you or put on your heart to share with the body of Christ? And don't hear rebuke here because I, I, I've done it myself. Or did you just turn up for church? The food will be there, the worship will be there, the preach will be there. I just go. See, there's a reverse challenge in what Paul is saying here to us, which asks us, what am I bringing to the body of Christ from God? Please bring your offerings. We'd love that. Please bring your volunteering and bring your gifts and, and worship, and that's all important as well. But, but you see, we need to be a people who are listening to God and hearing from Him. That's why we want to, to, to take a 24-hour focus on prayer. Let's make it a priority for us that we don't just become a nice club, people who like each other and kind of get on well and we mix well, we are the body of Christ, and there's a calling and a responsibility and a mandate that each one of us be saying, Lord, what are you saying? What are you saying? What are you challenging us with? What is the revelation that you want to bring to the church so that we can be the best cutting-edge witness to Jesus in Glasgow City Center in 2018 and 19 and 20 and, and that God wants there to be? And so Paul wanted this church to have the ability to hear what God was saying. And the ability to hear what God is saying can be lost in one of two ways, and, and, and probably Corinth and SGT are maybe at different extremes. I don't I want to sound unkind or critical because you guys are great, and I know that you are listening to God, and I know that you are bringing things that God is saying. So, but there's always room for more, Right? But at the two extremes, they've got one church where there's just so much coming, so much noise, thick and fast, that I can't hear myself think. 
can't hear what God is saying. I once went to a conference, uh, and it was with a, a group, that a ministry that I was once part of. Uh, it was a conference in Swanwick, and there were lots of people with a lot of prophetic gifting in the room. And then we were all asked to go away and take time in small groups just to listen for the Lord and listen to what He said and then come back and share it. And it was, it was great, but honestly, we were in that room for two hours. And by the time we got to the 37th person who was bringing something else, I couldn't take anymore. I couldn't take anymore. So Paul wants to limit how much is coming in this way to make sure that there isn't this zoo church doing its own thing. The church is to be built up. Two, at the most three, should, be, should speak of people who speak in tongues, and some must interpret. And if there's no one there who can interpret, sit down and hold it. Because it's of no value to anyone if the only thing that happens is that you get seen to have the gift of tongues. So what? That's just vanity. And same way, two or three prophets should speak, bringing a word from God. Bear in mind, they're not preaching from the Scriptures yet because they only have. The Jewish ones have a heritage of the Old Testament Scriptures. The Greek converts don't have any Scriptures except what they're maybe picking up from the Old Testament Scriptures. And he says, if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, well, let's do it like this. Let's wait for the first person to stop before number two gets up and starts. <laughs> That's just manners, right? Well, it's British manners, of course. <laughs> it's like queuing. Why is there nothing about queuing in the Bible here? Well, there is. For you can all prophesy in turn. There you go. <laughs> so God likes queuing. I don't mean that flippantly. I just mean that if it's just a noise, it's lost, and it doesn't honor God. Doesn't honor God. The spirits of prophets, this is a really important verse, the spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. What does it mean? It means, and especially those of you that are, I trust, and I'm going to keep on at you, you young Christians, are you praying and asking God to give you gifts? Are you praying and asking God to give you a heart and a desire and a longing? Because this is not for you to line them up and boast about them. This is so that you can play the fullest part God wants you to play in the body of Christ. But you have to ask and have the humility to receive and accept and be used in the way that God wants you to be used. But the spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets, which means that there is no room or space in the Christian world and the Christian gospel for us being taken over in some trance-like state and delivering a message that we can't do anything about because we're having an out-of-body experience. That is not Christianity. It might be transcendental meditation. It might be a whole host of other things, but it is not Christ. When Jesus uses us, and I use that word use carefully, when He works in and through us, He does that with us. It's a partnership. You are the vine, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me and I will remain in you. There's a partnership, which means that the Holy Spirit will never take you over or force you in some uncontrollable way. You may exercise control. So he gives you a revelation. 
And yes, your heart might be burning within you and you've got to get it out or you've got to tell someone, but you can control the when and where of it. There's no room or space for losing control in the sense that there might be in animistic religions or in other uh, expressions. So we just stop there. so easy to take offense to the next bit, isn't it? So easy. Women should remain silent in the churches. Let's remain with this context, okay? Let's bear in mind this noisy, babbling church. Let's bear in mind that probably it fell into cultural groups. And despite what Paul was urging them to embrace, which was that they were to love one another and embrace one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, the temptation would always be that the rich sat with the rich and the poor sat with the poor. We'd already had Paul's rebuke earlier on telling the rich people off for coming and having their own cafe church experience with a massive banquet and stuffing themselves. And then poor people coming in and there being nothing for him. And the experience of the breaking of bread and the sharing of the cup, which was communion, had become a rich versus poor divide in the church. And Paul was incensed. And so in this context, everyone's bringing something. In this zealous, enthusiastic Mediterranean way, it's noisy. There's too many people on their feet at the time. Now, let's think about women in this culture. And it's very easy for us to take offense at this passage if we read it through a Western democratic, 21st century, feminist, feminist egalitarian lens. There was no such lens. There was no such lens. It was considered a sin to educate a Jewish woman. It was considered uh, reprehensible for the Greek culture likewise, although not as bad. It was considered disgraceful, note the word, because Paul uses it, for a Jewish woman to speak in public or for a Greek woman to speak in public. That was the cultural context. And we know that that cultural context persists in parts of the world. Was it just this past week? that Saudi Arabia gave permission for women to drive, to have a driving license. So, let's park our feelings of being incensed and just think intelligently about what we know about other cultures in the world. You're thinking into a culture and a context where what we still see going on in uh, Iraq and Iran and Saudi Arabia prevailed then. And so women were not to be educated according to thinking at that time. And so here there's a tension. How to find a balance between the new freedoms and the new possibilities for women. Jesus affirmed women colossally. So let there be no question that Paul is echoing something other than the gospel. Paul, uh, sorry, Jesus valued women and their place in uh, his ministry hugely. 
Luke 8 starts off with a description of a number of women who supported Jesus' ministry with his disciples out of their own means. The woman of Samaria from John chapter 4 was, as far as we can tell, the first evangelist, the first person who took the message of the Messiah, delivered it to her community, brought other people out to meet him, and they too came to faith in Jesus on the basis of her introduction. Mary Magdalene was the first witness of the resurrection. A woman called Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth, was the first person that Paul met in Philippi and a church was planted in her home. Paul, uh, Aquila and Priscilla were met by Paul in Corinth. And they went on to be leaders of the church in Ephesus and then they went on to Rome as well. And actually, we'll come to a reference in chapter 16 where Aquila and Priscilla say, uh, remember me to the Corinthians. Remember us to the Corinthians. So there's no suggestion that women were excluded from the life of Christ or from the life of the church. Indeed, if we were to go back to verse 22 in chapter 11, we, the, the bit that we looked at before about... Um, no, it's not chapter... Sorry, chapter 11, verse 5. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So women were praying and prophesying. So there was a place for women. There was a place and an affirmation. And in the context of the church, they were being educated. They were being uh, discipled. They were being brought up in and into the life of Christ. Some of them were playing a part in the ministry of prayer and prophecy. So what is Paul talking about here? He's talking about this noisy, chaotic hubbub of a church. And if you've got several people over here speaking in tongues and no one's interpreting, and another group of people over here all standing up saying what they think God is telling them to say, there's already enough noise in the room. And if you've then got uh, women having a chat in the middle of it about either what's being said or what's just been said and so on. And so it's this climate of chaos that Paul is quite clearly seeking to address and inviting an atmosphere where there was listening and reverence, and stillness, and waiting. We don't have a parallel because there wasn't a church as such in Jesus' day. You remember that little story of, of Jesus in the house of Mary and Martha? And maybe that gives us a little illustration. It's far from being a perfect one. But there were two women and one woman who was busy and bustling and chatting and getting on with the job and, and, and not focusing on, on, on what Jesus was there to do. And she actually came and interrupted Jesus while he was teaching and said, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. And Jesus calms her down and says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things. Only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is right as she sat and listened to what the Lord had to say. 
So if you want a picture in the ministry of Jesus of the two extremes, take Martha and Mary. Now this verse and this passage has been plucked out of all of the context that we've just been thinking about together and turned into a reason why women shouldn't uh, exercise ministry, why women should be forced to keep quiet and not speak or pray or, or, and so on. It's an abuse of the text. And so Paul is speaking into a cacophony and trying to bring a measure of order and silence and calm in order that that which, the, that which the Lord is really saying is being heard, really heard. You know, sheer quantity is no guarantee of anything. The babble of noise. And actually just to find the place of stillness and of hearing perhaps that one word that the Lord is saying. Why is Paul making such a big deal about this? Because he does not want the good news of Jesus, the invitation to know salvation, forgiveness from sin, and a relationship with the living God to be lost from sight because someone who's not yet a believer comes into this church, sees chaos, and says... <laughs> You and I all know people who have never made it to the gospel because they got hurt, disappointed, or offended by the church. The church sometimes is, does far too good a job of putting a barrier between people and Jesus. And sometimes for silly rules and things that we make a big deal of. And Paul wanted this church, and particularly a church that was operating in a cultural context that was not yet majorly Christian. Constantine and his decree was way ahead in the future. So right now, these were little vulnerable churches operating in cultures where there, was a, there were rules and there was propriety about how men and women behaved. We've seen it all the way through this letter. The pressure to go to your trade guild and eat pagan food just to keep your job and make an income. So how to make sure that this church, celebrating the freedom for men and women of knowing Jesus and growing in Jesus, and coming into the freedom of life in Jesus, how to make sure that this church didn't offend the culture by spilling out onto the streets with uncovered heads and women talking and doing all the things that made everybody else looking on saying, ha, that's exactly the reason why they're some kind of wacky cult, and I'll have nothing to do with them. And so for you and for me, we translate the principles, and we say, what does it look like for me to honor Jesus in the culture where I am, to say no to the things I know Jesus tells me to say no to, and to honor and respect the culture of other people round about me in a way that still makes it possible for me to speak of Jesus, to show Jesus. Let's not be putting people off when we don't need to be putting people off. And so as we reflect on this, 
Bear in mind that this is a message written to a particular church at a particular time. But I think the principles would still apply. I think Paul would be saying to us, so when you come together, you, you've heard from God, right? You've prayed for the service. You've prayed for the preaching. You've prayed for your own heart and the heart of other people around about you. You've asked God to tell you or show you what it is that he might want. You know, if, you, if, if the Lord gives you something that you feel he wants you to share, don't just, you know, come and talk to me or come and talk to someone in the leadership team. I would love to think that we will be ready and willing to say, would you just like to share that? You know, I think we do enough testimony apart from anything else in this church. And it's my fault. <laughs> just inviting people to say, what has God been saying to you this week? So maybe that's just something you need to hold me to account about. How can we be a people who are hearing God? And how can we be a people who are behaving in a way that isn't putting a barrier up, but is trying to take them down? It's why we don't do church in a Presbyterian way. Because it's become a barrier. Pews and choirs and all things churchy have become for many people, especially younger people, a barrier. Well, we don't need to do it because it's not in here. But what we do need to do is to eagerly desire everything the Lord has got for us and at the center of it all, keep love. At the center of it all, keep love. Love for those you like and love for those you don't. Love for those you know and love for those you don't know yet. Because that's what the marker of the body of Christ is. And in a loveless, lonely, lost, hurting, broken world walking past this building, that's the biggest and most powerful thing that people long to see. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you so much for the way that you speak to us and reach us and minister to us where we are in our cultural context. This is a word that you spoke to a particular group of people with all the challenges we thought about. But Lord, what do you want to say to us? What do you want to say to St. George's Tron in 2018? And may we have the humility to hear it. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would pour out your spirit upon them. I pray, Lord, that we would not be content just to settle for where we are. But Lord, that you would call us up and on to pursue you, to listen to you, to desire eagerly everything that you have for us so that we may enter into the fullness of the ministry or the mission or the service, the proclamation, whatever it is you have for and through us for the body of Christ. Father, I pray that you would make us a church where people coming in can see and sense and know how these Christians love one another. Lord, make us like the body of Christ, the body of Jesus, this gathering of beautifully wonderful people in the middle of a city center as a sign of the risen Jesus. And so, Lord, would you descend upon us, fill us, anoint and equip us, release us, and enable us, Lord, to come able and ready to bring testimony to your goodness 
Let your spirit flow in and through this place, we pray, that we may go deeper and deeper in you and with you, and that the overflow of your grace to us might touch and change and challenge the people on the streets around us. So, Lord, make your church here, your church throughout Glasgow, in every expression and place, a people who are hearing and speaking and listening and loving. Because we pray that the body of Jesus may be all you want and need it to be for this, for such a time as this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.